Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis and international affairs. This week, I'm here with my talented co-host, Matt Potter. And you might have heard his debut on our last episode, and he's back with us again this week. Thanks, Nicole. Looks like I made the cut. So I'm excited to be back in studio and ready to jump into our topic for the week. I think the woman who spoke about it on your introduction spoke for a lot of Colombians, which is they've suffered enormously, they've been victimized, they're... They're bitter about that, rightfully so, and they felt the FARC got off too easy in this peace accord. Whether that's true or not is up to debate, but many Colombians felt that way, and they turned out, and by a very small majority, um, rejected the, the accord. So that was Bernard Aronson, U.S. Special Envoy for the Colombian peace process, speaking about the results of the recent referendum held in Colombia regarding the peace deal. So, as some of you may know, it's been an eventful few weeks in Colombia. The government, led by President Juan Manuel Santos, recently put forward a referendum to gain popular acceptance of a peace deal with FARC, a a radical left-wing guerrilla organization that's been waging a bloody civil war in the country since 1964. The referendum ultimately led to the peace deal being narrowly rejected by 50.21% of those who voted. So generally speaking, the people that voted against the peace deal felt that members of FARC were getting off too uh, easily in the deal because of the lack of mandatory jail time uh, included in the agreement. So furthermore, some were upset about the idea of FARC becoming a legitimate political party. And certainly one can relate uh, to the people of Colombia. And the citizens have been through a lot. The conflict has lasted for over 50 years and has killed around 220,000 people and has left over 7 million people internally displaced. So many just want the fighting to end, but many also want FARC to pay more seriously for the crimes that were committed over the last half century. Crimes like kidnapping, torture, drug smuggling, and the use of child soldiers. So since the rejection of the peace deal by the people of Colombia, both the government and FARC have been left scrambling to maintain peace. President Santos, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts, recently announced that the ceasefire with FARC has been extended to the end of 2016 to gain time for additional negotiation and a more favorable deal. But the future of the deal at this point uh, remains in doubt. And on a more positive note, this is a very special week on Policy Talks. We are joined today by Professor Jean Dodelin from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now, if you recall, he was our very first guest on this podcast, and he's back again now for our 10th episode. Professor Dodlin teaches on development and conflict and is a specialist of Latin America, particularly Brazil, Central America, and Colombia, where he has researched religious movements, indigenous politics, urban violence, economic integration, and regional politics. His current research focuses on property rights and conflict, on Brazilian foreign policy, and international relations in the Americas. He also looks at crime and violence in Latin America. So welcome back to Policy Talks. Thank you, thank you, it's a pleasure. Happy to have you. So getting right into our topic, the world celebrated the historic peace deal between FARC and Colombia after over 50 years. Um, Though the referendum did not seal the deal, so to say, could you give us an idea as to why FARC was willing to come to the negotiating table now? Why now after 50 years? 
I think I think they were tired. Really, uh, if you look at the recent history of guerrillas in Latin America, they basically, all of them had demobilized by 1989. And uh, FARC was able to continue because uh, though they were not receiving external support, uh, they were able to maintain themselves through various economic activities about which we'll talk later, no doubt. Uh, so I think, uh, I think there was a lassitude on one side. On the other side, they were under heavy pressure from the government. And uh, really, the, the balance of force was getting extremely disadvantageous. Uh, they were down to seven, eight, 9,000, perhaps. And the government, uh, meanwhile, the government had cranked up its military to close to 300,000. They were well-equipped, well-trained. So on, on the FARC side, I think that was the main the main motive. On the government side, um, I think at some point there is a diminishing return kicks in. Uh, the 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 military expenditure represents between three and four percent of GDP in Colombia, and uh, I think the population as a whole was also very tired. I think that much of that peace process and the ending has to do with lassitude. So kind of a general fatigue. Um, that said, should we understand Colombia's willingness to engage the group in negotiation to be perhaps demonstrative of at least some limitations in its uh, you know, counterinsurgency and, and uh, counterterrorism operations? Or, as you say, were they kind of on track to perhaps eliminate the group altogether? No, I, I think what it shows is that uh, there are diminishing returns to counterinsurgency. At some point, I mean, to completely eliminate a group like FARC, which has which had significant capabilities, uh, which had shown itself to be very effective, uh, extremely uh, knowledgeable of their environment, in a country where the central government doesn't control the whole territory, is extremely expensive. So at some point, completely, completely crushing the FARC would have implied uh, an extremely long and expensive conflict. So on that side, I think, uh, I think there's a point at which counterinsurgency becomes non-economical, non if you wish. Okay, so uh, the FARC group originally started as a left-leaning uh, communist group, but as we've discussed, they've turned to illegal tactics like kidnapping, uh, guerrilla tactics, uh, drug smuggling. So how do you see this drift in political ideology over time? Do you think they've gone completely away from the left-leaning uh, stance? I think, I think that that picture is a bit exaggerated. Uh, part of the FARC, and in fact the origins of the FARC, uh, is to be seen as, uh, as self-defense. And you have to understand that uh, uh, rural populations were, were under pressure and have been uh, up to this day. And so, so part of the motive was self-defense. And it's, it's really a, it's a peasant-based group, and these people had a very hard time um, for, for decades, for decades. So part of it was self-defense with, with, yes, a social program about land reform, about some kind of guarantees, because also they were being, uh, they were being expelled from their land, and this hasn't stopped. So, it, so it's not just the origin, because that situation continued. And in fact, what you describe, uh, 
uh, the kidnappings, uh, the drug trafficking, these revenues that people estimate to vary between $200 million and $3 billion, uh, I think they have to be put in context. I don't want to defend um, the kind of tactics that were used, but, but put yourself in the place of FARC leaders. If you had access to millions, to hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, would you really hide and run in the bush, uh, persecuted by the best trained military force in Latin America? Personally, I think I would get new papers, a plastic surgery, and I tried to move to uh, Costa Rica or Paris. So my point is, my point is, I think this whole idea of narco terrorists is a bit of a stretch. That some of them, that some of them could have become corrupt. Yes, but as a movement, to see them as bandits just like any other, I think it, it doesn't help uh, our understanding of them. You have to consider during the negotiation process, I mean, some participants in the negotiation would go back to Colombia and die fighting. So if, if you're a millionaire looking to secure your bank account, you don't do that. So in a way, you see the drug smuggling and that kind of profit-motivated activity as being more for funding their yes. uh, ideological Sa stance. Yes, yes, and I'm not saying that they were not using terrorist tactics. They were, they were using violence, but I, I don't think in general that there is incompatibility, that historically there's been incompatibility between left-wing progressive ideology and the use of terrorism, basically the killing of civilians for, 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 for big impact. So I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's very useful to look at the FARC as a bunch of bandits. Now you've spoken of FARC as a movement. Um, given that they've adopted perhaps these more unsavory practices, uh, would you say that their public support in rural areas remains high? Or I uh, it this is it's it's not clear. See um, and. Um, I think some of the things, for instance, that they demanded and got in the original agreement uh, were very clearly reflections of demands, traditional demands of, of the peasantry in, in Colombia. Now, the extent to which these people would have support, would have liked, would have preferred um, some kind of different representation is unclear. Okay, perhaps they, they perhaps they, they, they supported them because they had to. Uh, in the case, for instance, of coca producers in these areas, uh, the production of coca makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So, obviously, it made sense for it made sense for the fire, but it made lots of sense for the peasantry also. So you have all kinds of deals that people engage in. Um, as, as part of negotiations, if you wish. So, so I would not read it as support necessarily, but, but at the same time, uh, I don't think that that population um, stayed there because they were forced to. So it's a kind of, it's a mix, it's a mix. The real test of this would have been uh, free elections with the FARC as a political party. and. Uh, then, then we would see. Then we would see. 
So it seems like there's a pretty significant geographic component to this conflict. So I'm not sure if you would be able to stipulate it all. Do you think there would be a rural-urban divide between the people who voted for or against the peace deal? From, from what I've seen, uh, it's not so much urban-rural. It was the zones where the yes vote got its highest uh, uh, support were the zones that were most affected by the conflict. And um, so, and they happen to be in rural areas, but I think, I think it's, that's one of the reasons why I speak of lassitude. See, there are the people who wanted this to end, okay, and just to plug, there's a marvelous, I forgot the name of the other, but there's, there's a marvelous novel written by a uh, Colombian, it's called Los Ejércitos, the, uh, the, 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 the armies. And it's about people being caught in the middle of the military, the paramilitaries, and the guerrillas. And you can understand when you read this, which is, if you read Spanish, it's a marvelous book, you understand the kind of drama and the kind of violence under which they live and why they would want it to end. Now, you alluded to just this general fatigue uh, felt amongst the Colombian population. Could you perhaps expand on, you know, to what degree did public pressure bring the Colombian government to the table? I, I, I don't think there was that much public pressure. In fact, um, the process went on for a very long time. Uh, Santos was not very popular. I think that if Colombians had, if the Nobel Prize had been, uh, had depended on popular support in Colombia, Santos would never have received it. Um, but so in terms of, uh, of popular pressure, I think, I think there was an opportunity for Santos, but it looked much more like an opportunity internationally. And also, I think the prospects for using the resources to do other things, I mean, it's a lot of money, 3.5% of GDP, uh, was also appealing for some sectors of the government, but I, there was no, as far as I can, as I can ascertain, there was no very strong pressure for a conflict. You have to understand it was confined to marginal areas, increasingly irrelevant to the everyday life of the vast majority of Colombians who have to deal with many other challenges, among others, criminal violence. Okay, so the FARC in that picture was, were, not, were not really big. So do you think the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize will impact the negotiating process going forward at all, or do you think it won't have any impact? I, I think that that's what the Swedes hope. But, uh, but honestly, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that it reinforces the hand of, uh, of, uh, of Santos for a very simple reason. One thing that's really interesting about the conflict in Colombia, if you compare it to Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, those other conflicts that no doubt you've been talking about, is that it's domestic. It's a domestic game. And um, I, I don't think that Santos has gained one vote with that Nobel Prize. So the movement, the people who resisted it, and whose voice was really Alvaro Uribe, the former president, uh, they, they couldn't care less. About, uh, the, um, about the Nobel Peace Prize. There's one thing that Aronson hasn't mentioned that you've not asked, and I fear you won't ask it, but I think a key issue 
about the referendum proper is abstention. More than 60% of people didn't go and vote. And I think this is, it's very important to consider that, and I think that's another of my indicators of lassitude. The polls suggested that the yes would, vote, would win overwhelmingly, and people were not particularly keen about this. So they just let other people vote, and I think that's one of the reasons why, why we had this Brexit part two, in a way. See, oh, we know how it will end, let others do the, basically pitch their nose and vote yes to that thing, which we don't necessarily fully agree with, but overall we think it's better for the country. We've heard talk of Hurricane Matthew affecting coastal areas where perhaps a strong yes vote population may reside, but you're implying perhaps then that uh, the no. hurricane was not so much of an issue in the... No, no I think given, this, given the, the, the difference, the size of the difference, uh, the hurricane could have changed the outcome, could have changed the outcome. Now, I think the biggest number is this 61.2% abstention. So that's, that's what you have to keep in mind when thinking about the next steps. Mm. So who exactly do you think makes up this 61%? Uh, I, I think mostly people who've, who wanted to vote yes, uh, because the no side was really strongly motivated. Uh, the yes side was just, as I said, mostly tired. And, and, and for the majority of them, there was not that much at stake because it doesn't affect their everyday life. So um, I think a large number of the people who went to the demonstrations, all those young people and the, the famous demonstration that followed the week after the, after the referendum, which was really touching. And I think that showed that really there's widespread support for an agreement. But 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 it I wouldn't I would have liked to see how many of them had voted. Changing tracks a bit, um, I was wondering: Is there a danger in negotiating with groups like FARC uh, in that engaging with them in in this context would bestow on them a sort of legitimacy? Well, if you define it in in in, in very broad terms, yes, it may. But but. But you have to understand the nature of this negotiation. Formally, I think you're perfectly right, because what was discussed uh, had, uh, uh, was very important in terms of public policy. See, uh, there was, there's a land agreement. There were talks of, uh, of reorganizing political representation okay, with regional NGOs and so on. There were all kinds of things in that agreement. And uh, so to that extent, I would say, there's a risk. There's a risk of this. Now, um, at the same time, I don't think that in this case that risk was particularly high. Because in its demands, except about amnesty for themselves and some kind of political formula that ensure that they would have some representation in Congress, aside from that, these demands were really in tune with demands that were made by a large number of social movements and people who were not, who did not identify with the FARC. So, so the legitimacy was given, aside from political representation and amnesty, 
legitimacy for the social side of the agreement was really about the substantive issues. And now, who could, who could capture that legitimacy is unclear. But I don't think that the FARC could have claimed that. See, if uh, the, the land agreement had ever been implemented, it's not clear to me that the FARC would have won many votes in spite of the fact that it could have been supported by a large part of the population. See, so they basically were surfing on a wave that was not of their making. So before we go on a break here, maybe just uh, looking forward, do you see a new peace deal anytime soon, within the next few months, or will it be another protracted process? I, 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 I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they reach some kind of acceptable agreement relatively shortly, okay? Well, we'll go on break here. Catch up with us after. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. John Dudelin on his perspectives on the peace deal between FARC and Colombia. To recap, the FARC-Colombia peace deal was rejected with the no campaign pulling ahead by just 0.2%. Polls predicted an easy win for the yes campaign, leaving the Colombian government optimistic for a long-awaited end to 52 years of war. The opposition, however, continues to push for a renegotiated deal. Despite the countless killings, kidnappings, and child recruitment, the current deal would have allowed FARC leaders to avoid jail for their crimes. The No campaign, led by former President Alvaro Uribe, is still working toward a renegotiated deal with harsher terms. So to just go straight into a question here, as Nicole touched, one of the contentious issues was the uh, jail time angle. Do you think FARC would ever agree to a deal where real jail time uh, was included? Uh, you have to distinguish, we're talking about the, the leadership, first of all, the rank and file immediately after the referendum, uh, Uribe said that, that the rank and files would get amnesty. He had nothing against it. So uh, this, by the way, has very serious implication about the ability of the leadership to remobilize the rank and files because they have their deal. Again, political participation was not much of a hope for them anyway. Uh, so as, as to the leadership, I'd say the top leaders could probably get apartments in Havana and stay there, and then it wouldn't matter much. But for the others, I think it's trickier. Now, the point for these people is that uh, what are their options? See, I don't think that the opposition would accept, period, no, no, um, basically no prison at all. So I think in the end, some of them might have to take a few, cent a few years in uh, in agricultural colonies or stuff like that. 
uh, it's it's almost impossible for me to think that uh, they could get away with it. Now there could be negotiation about how far up the amnesty goes, but I think that some will end up will end up in prison. I don't see the kind of things that you saw with the paramilitaries where people ended up in the United States with drug trafficking. I don't see that happening. Well, building on this, um, would you say that peace agreements are better served by emphasizing reconciliation over traditional concepts of heavy-handed justice like, you know, uh, long uh, stints in jail? Um, in what way might such measures affect the lasting impact of such peace agreements? Well, I, I think I think the, the the political leadership needs to balance uh, the concessions, because what they want is political sustainability. If they give too much, then there will be a backlash, and I think that's partly what we've seen, but only partly. Again, to insist, because of the abstention. Okay, so um, I don't think that it offers a a model, if you wish, from that standpoint, because that that was really hardcore counterinsurgency, uh, very heavy military pressure, use of helicopters. Um, it's really quite classic counterinsurgency against a very small group of, very small group of opponents, 300,000 against 8,000. So I don't see, I don't see, I don't think that from that standpoint, reconciliation, which may be an option in other conflicts, see Rwanda, and, but talk to specialists. In this case, this is not really what people are talking about, which is unfortunate because, as, as we discussed earlier, in the regions that were most affected, so the people were most directly impacted by the war, they want, they want reconciliation. They want an end to it. So another uh, left-wing guerrilla group in Colombia is actually the ELN, and the Colombian government recently announced it would try and negotiate another peace deal with the ELN. So given the deal with the FARC has fallen through, would a deal with the ELN be more likely to succeed? And is it advisable to start negotiating this deal now uh, with things the way they are with FARC? Yeah, well, the ELN said that they were willing to start negotiating with the government. So, but, but obviously what happens to the FARC will be determinant here. Now, in the case of the ELN, the situation is even more the problem is even more marginal. I mean, they have about 2,000 soldiers. Yes, they do kidnappings. Yes, they, they recruit. Uh, yes, they, 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 they recruit child soldiers. Uh, but really, in, in the context of a country that's still horrendously violent, um, it's, it's, it's an utterly marginal issue. So there's very little to pressure the government into making substantial concessions to the ELN. And, uh, and their situation is even more desperate than that of the FARC. So if they could make a deal with relatively moderate um, uh, jail sentence or punitive sentence for the, for the leadership of the FARC, I think the ELN would buy into it. Sorry, so just to expand on that a little more, uh, besides the size and the resources, are there any other notable differences between the ELN and the FARC that might impact a peace deal, and how have the FARC and ELN been received, if you can comment on that at all? Well, they, they, they have different origin. The ELN is a more classic Latin American guerrilla movement, starting in university campuses, these left-wing radios, you know, and people going on. And, and um, so it's, it's more of a classic thing. 
um, and with very narrow social base, uh, whereas uh, whereas the FARC has a peasant roots and was really, uh, they were not tourists in the mountains, in the area where they were, in the forest where they were, whereas the ELN, like all those student movements, they were, well, tourists is a big word, a bit mean, but, but they were not, they were not from there. Moving on, uh, would you say that there's a potential now that the deal has, you know, it's perhaps in limbo, um, is there potential for this to affect greater regional security? Might hostilities resume in, in any scenario? Or would you say that the fighting is done, it's just hashing out the, the uh, finer details at this point? Well the, first, the, well, the fighting has been done in practice for a while. I mean, there were skirmishes here and there. Uh, but but not, not on any significant scale. But more importantly, the, 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 the conflict had been contained to Colombia for decades. It had had almost no reverberations, regional. You will bring up, because you're extremely well prepared, the invasion of Ecuador to destroy a far camp that led to a regional crisis. But that, that's, that's a marginal event that was extremely unlikely to degenerate into a serious war. Ecuador is not interested in any way in a serious conflict with Colombia at this point, and nobody is. That's not how South American countries deal with their problems. So contamination, no, no. And on the east side, even less. I was actually wondering, perhaps, we had made reference to the FARC's um, uh, kind of entry into the drug trade. Does this particular activity perhaps have greater regional impact? Yes, yes it does. And in fact, if you look at, at, at basically what is likely to happen now, what are the challenges? See, because people talk about, okay, what happens, the whole thing is, has collapsed. In fact, the most important things that, were that are involved in consolidating the peace in, in Colombia have to do with dealing with rural violence and with dealing with criminal groups. So what you have now is the risk that these criminal groups could recruit former guerrillas, but something that, that I feel is, is, is completely neglected, the, the tens and possibly up to 100,000 soldiers that will be demobilized now they are not, that they are not needed for security purposes. And these people will be very easy praise, quote unquote, for these groups that are heavily involved in criminal activities of all kinds, of all kinds. I mean, illegal mining, forestry, uh, um, and drug trafficking, and drug trafficking. So for, as for the rest, I mean, in terms of drug trafficking, it's been working fine. Uh, basically, the, the production in Colombia has has been picked up by Bolivia and Peru, uh, where uh, drug production and exports have have uh, have been increasing very significantly in recent years without any significant increase in violence. So you have very well managed drug markets, drug production processes in Bolivia and Peru, no violence, and uh, and so so it's more again domestic. And it has more to do with the inability, basically, of the Colombians to get a grip on how to deal drugs and how to export cocaine without killing one another.
So the conflict is by nature domestic, but we've talked a little bit about how other countries have been involved in some respects. You mentioned uh, Bolivia and Peru with the drug trade and uh, Ecuador with the physical involvement, but... Uh, and the United States with very significant military aid. Exactly. And to talk about aid a little bit more, uh, Canada is supporting Colombia in its peace efforts through donated money, and it's just announced that it will give $57.4 million to fund five peace implementation projects over five years. So these projects are supposed to help survey and remove mines as well as supporting women and youth. So why is this kind of funding being directed to Colombia when the peace deal hasn't even been ratified? And what can the international community do to support a peace deal now that it's falling apart? Well, uh, I, I, think, I think you have to, you have to see uh, the main challenges that underlie the, the, the main challenges basically of Colombia, even in those war zones, as development challenges, as equity challenges, as reconciliation challenges, and from that, and demining. And, and from the standpoint of kind of aid that Canada has promised, whether there's an agreement or not, matter and are likely to have some impact. And in fact, on, on demining, I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's great to see Canada re-engaging uh, after years of neglecting uh, basically uh, a file in which it had played such an important role to establish. Perhaps wrapping up, um, to what extent might this framework for peace be applicable to other intrastate conflicts across the globe? Um, are they the, prefer the preferable policy in instances where groups show a particular resilience to counterinsurgency, as in they just seem capable of sticking around no matter how hard the government hammers them? Okay, uh, it depends how you define the formula. Okay, if the formula is let domestic forces uh, reach stalemate and make a deal, okay, that's substantive, if one part. Second part, make that deal be negotiated uh, under the guise of huge uh, reconciliation and concessions and so on, as was done, as was done. So basically a rhetorical cover to something that's very realist-based, uh, realist-based uh, uh, agreement, I think, I think you, have, you have a formula there. Now, it's unusual for conflicts that kill as many people not to have foreign players in. They're extremely, ultimately very destabilizing. It's very unusual. And second, uh, what's good about Colombia, but what was made possible in a way by the fact that the conflict was confined to marginal areas, is the ability of the government to show restraint and openness. But you can only do that if people are not too bitter about it. If lassitude can overcome bitterness and the bitter ones voted no and they represent about 15 percent of, of the population but that's not much so this leaves space for the government to make concessions quite significant so as a final question given the factors we've discussed today uh, based on your own interpretation of those what do you think the chances are for long-lasting peace in Colombia well, it depends how you define peace. If, if you define peace in terms of political conflict, I think it's essentially over. If you define peace as, uh, as homicide rates below 
15 per 100,000, which Colombia has not had for more than 50 years, uh, then uh, I'd, I'd say you'd better be prepared to wait 20 years or more. Well, thank you. Uh, that's all the time that we have today. A big thanks again to Professor Dodelin for his time on our show, and we hope to have you back again the next time that we tackle the Latin American region. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Stay tuned for more episodes coming your way two weeks from now. We can probably look forward to a post-American election episode sometime in the near future. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. A quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Chris Brodkin, Mark Hyken, Juhi Sohani, our technical crew, Samran Roy and Megan Boisjali, and our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Nicole. This is Policy Talks.